Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. It is 3 p.m. on September 6, 2022, and this is episode number three. My name is Tim Enneking. Today, we will discuss three topics. One, our ongoing theme, recurring theme of correlation. Secondly, when good news is bad news and vice versa. And third is what really we need on a macro, from a macroeconomic standpoint for interest rate hikes to slow down, stop, and even reverse. So back to the first topic, correlation. Been fascinating watching the correlation between crypto and fiat. Even just today, after the fiat markets in New York closed, what you saw was an immediate move up in BTC in particular, but also pretty much across the board, of $400 in BTC's case within literally one minute after the markets closed. Not a huge move on a percentage basis or in absolute terms, but it was a significant reversal of the prior movement today. And if you watch the NASDAQ, which opened up and went down and then recovered and then went down some more, but basically moved sideways for most of the day, this big drop that came out pretty much came out of the blue. Now, it may have been linked to Binance's announcement regarding converting all stablecoins into BUSD. Difficult to tell, but there was no comparable drop on the fiat market. So there was a lack of correlation. That notwithstanding, if you look what happened over the weekend, when Asia was open, this is a long weekend in the United States because yesterday was Labor Day. When Asia was open, when the markets, particularly in China, were open, uh, and a little bit before then, uh, BTC was tracking the markets very nicely. And when markets were closed, there was actually something I haven't been looking at a lot yet, but I'm going to add to the thesis, is the futures markets seem to be fairly reasonably correlated with uh, BTC and the crypto markets in general. Not really sure how tight that is yet, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought. So what's really happening is when U.S. equities markets are open during those eight hours from Monday to Friday. Bitcoin and crypto, a little bit in general, track very closely. The moment markets close, that correlation, it's not just that the correlation ends, obviously it ends because one of the markets isn't open, but the movement reverses very often and it becomes independent. Same thing when markets open, although the convergence there, the correlation there starts a little bit earlier because you see a lot of people pay attention to the futures markets in the 30 minutes, let's say, maybe 60 minutes running up uh, to the market open. But the market open in fiat is also a bit of a, a torrential time. It's a bit of a volatile time, yet crypto seems to follow that volatility. So we're really seeing a crazy level of correlation. But because, again, crypto markets are open five times as much as any single a fiat market, and because the U.S. market is so dominant in terms of this correlation effect, you end up with a trading thesis that's absolutely fascinating, but you also end up with something where you have to ask yourself, why is correlation so high when those markets fundamentally have so little to do with one another? And the answer then I think is getting even more strong, and that is that as institutions move into the crypto space, they're lumping crypto, especially Bitcoin, into risk-on, risk-off, into risky assets like emerging markets, and they're tracking as a result. It's amazing to watch it happen, 
And I don't know where this correlation is going to go, but I will submit that as long as the correlation stays anywhere nearly this tight, we will not see an ATH, an all-time high, in Bitcoin or the crypto markets. Of course, you also this week have some volatility that's ETH specific, Ethereum specific because of the merge. But even then, I have to tell you that I'm surprised that there hasn't been more of an uplift, uh, a buy in the rumor and sell on the news sort of thing in ETH, although you could argue that's already happened. And today when this big drop kicked in just before, well, two hours again before the market closed, ETH has been hit less by some such drops as a general rule, but this time uh, the drop was actually bigger in a percentage on a percentage basis. ETH is still doing better than BTC because of the prior moves, but uh, the correlation is extremely high and it doesn't look like it's going to break anytime soon. But I think it's important that it does, or, and I think it's important that it does. Second point I want to talk about is when good news is bad news and bad news is good news. With a footnote that this makes sense, and is actually rational behavior. Just going to take two examples here, one, one a bit uh, historical and the other one very current. When you had quantitative easing, so basically any time between, say, late 2009, early 2010, and until seven, seven, eight months ago, so an enormously long period of time of cheap money when a whole generation grew up with only growth, bad news was good news. When you had employment going up, when you had, in that case, in the, during this period, there wasn't in, in inflation, uh, and inflation wasn't really relevant, but when you had negative economic news, so a given sector was suffering, or individuals, a lot of individuals were being uh, fired from a given company or a given sector, the stock market went up. Why did it do that? Because bad news was good news. As long as there was negative economic news, the spigot would stay turned on, Money would be cheap, easy, and plentiful, and quantitative easing would continue. That trend actually accelerated during COVID, with the exception of the announcement of COVID itself. Because remember, during the year that COVID actually became a, a thing, the stock market was up massively. And if you count from the bottom, it was up almost 50%. Absolutely crazy numbers. And the moral, the moral of the story was bad news was good. Now you hit quantitative tightening, and the reverse is true. Good economic news is bad news. Because what happens when you have, like we had recently, fairly strong employment numbers? So the, the employment didn't grow as much, but also the number, of, the number of people looking for employment increased. And so you're thinking, okay, unemployment didn't go up. We want unemployment to go up because that means fewer people have money to spend and that's going to reduce demand and that's going to reduce inflation. Definitely a simplified version, but there's an effect there. Now that you have strong, or relatively speaking, very strong still by historical standards, it's important to understand that. We'll get, that, we'll get to that more in the next point. Quantitative tightening is going to continue. Interest rates will continue to be increased. And debt will continue to not be renewed when it rolls off the Fed balance sheet, when, when bonds that it's purchased in the past mature. And so money is going to get tighter. And it's going to get tighter until there is economic bad news. And at that point in time, the, the snake is turned. And what we have is the point where bad economic news 
will be will be good news. But then, and that will continue until interest rates go down, and then it will flip again, and good economic news will be bad news. The moral of the story is the Fed is always behind. If you have good news going on and it made a mistake that saying inflation was transitory, that means it has to tighten the screws more to get rid of to get rid of inflation or re- reduce inflation. Once it succeeds in doing that, and we've all heard the stories about a recession coming, which means the the Fed has overdone it because it's very difficult to time. It almost never happens historically. Then when we have bad economic news, it'll continue to be good news. But at some point in time, we'll get too much good news and that will turn into bad news and the Fed will want to tighten again. That's how these cycles always happen. So right now, if you're looking at macroeconomic news, you don't want employment to be low. You don't want uh, demand to be high. You don't want the economy to be healthy by any real metric because that means the Fed can take its foot off of the interest rate hike pedal. Uh, It sounds absurd, but it actually makes sense, uh, particularly if you're looking out 12 to 18 months as markets have a tendency to do. The third and last point for today is what what is the Fed really looking for for interest rates hikes, hikes to stop? Now, this is more complicated now than it's been in the past. Because we've the, the United States and the world economy in general has very rarely had a situation where inflation is so high, interest rates are increasing, but unemployment is so low. Part of the reason is because historically inflation has been demand driven. You have a lot of demand, supply is what it is, and the, that excess demand or the not even necessarily excess, but robust demand exceeds supply because supply hasn't caught up, hasn't caught up and you, as a result, you have prices increase and there's inflation. Here, we have that effect to some degree, but as rarely, as rarely in the past we've had, a, we have supply inflation. That is the, the supply chain difficulties and all of the disruption that, you've, that we've all read about means that there's actually less supply while there's also great demand. Well, the Fed can affect demand-driven inflation. It can't affect supply-driven inflation. The the Fed can make it very expensive to borrow money and to generate demand that way. But there's nothing the Fed can do to suddenly make goods appear when they're having difficulty appearing. So here we have a bit of both, and it makes it more difficult for the Fed to reduce uh, inflation. But if you use an example where this is where we have two different trends, remember a year ago, everyone was screaming about the chip shortage. And now, actually, for some kinds of chips, chip manufacturers are talking about chip excess. Why? Because of the long lead times in putting together a fab, which is a fabrication facility for microchips and memory, that makes it very difficult to determine when you should build and when you shouldn't. There are still types of chips, in particular still automobile chips, that are experiencing a shortage, but in general, across the board, there is no longer a shortage and manufacturers are worrying about excess. They're unique in that, unfortunately, perhaps, and most other manufacturers are still trying to catch up. So the question is, what do you need? What does the Fed need to slow down hikes? A representative of a Wall Street investment firm and good friend of mine told me recently that his firm thought that unemployment would have to move up to 4.6% 
before the Fed would stop raising interest rates. But think about it. 20 years ago, even 15 or perhaps 10 or 12 years ago, full employment was considered to be 5% by virtually every economist. Why 5% when, when you could say, well, full employment, zero, everyone's got a job. But the fact of the matter is people quit their jobs for various reasons. They move, new jobs happen, old jobs are excluded. So you end up with, from a theoretical perspective, you can never have 100% employment. And so historically, folks thought, economists thought, okay, 95%, that's full employment. That's obviously dis, been disproven empirically because right now we have 97.5% employment, excluding underemployment and other things, but we have 3.5% unemployment. Going to 4.6, going up to 4.6, 4.6 is a wonderful employment rate. And 3.5, you may argue, is artificial because it, unemployment has been uh, artificially driven down by cheap money. So maybe the economists in a normal economy historically have been correct. Unemployment, normal unemployment, minimum unemployment is 5%. The thought is, I'm not sure I necessarily uh, buy the statement that it has to go up. If the Fed did a perfect job, maybe it doesn't. But the Fed is not going to do a perfect job. It's virtually impossible to do so. So we are going to see hikes until unemployment starts to increase. Now, that doesn't mean the end of the world. It may not have to get to 4.6% as this firm feels, but it's almost certainly have, going to have to increase and almost certainly will have to increase, not dramatically, not significantly over a very short period of time, but let's say it drifts up by a tenth of a percent a month for six months or even 12 months the U.S. economy at that point in time and most other economies would still be in a very, very comfortable position. And that's it for episode number three of Out on a Limb. Thank you very much.